Have you ever thought about the fact that the Bible never commands us Old or New Testament to celebrate the birth of Jesus by having a holiday? Put another way, Christmas is not a command to celebrate Christmas. If anything, one of the holidays that we should celebrate, and not just once a year, is Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, which really we should celebrate that like every Sunday. In the early church, it was known as Resurrection Sunday. But church isn't commanded anywhere in the Scripture. And yet, as followers of Jesus, if you know Him, you get this, right? We are compelled and we are driven to remember this very significant event where God Himself left heaven and became a human being. In fact, this time of year, Jesus, was, most scholars believe, He probably was born in September rather than December. But this is the time of year that we set aside, and there's freedom in that, right? To remember this great gift that we've been given. So this Christmas season, the next three Sundays, we're going to be looking at a short little series in the book of Matthew, chapters 1 and 2, um, that is entitled, as you can see from the slide, To Fulfill Five Scenes one Savior. Five scenes, one Savior. And what we're going to see is, much like a, you know when we, have you ever heard a story or perhaps even watched a movie where you're given the, the conclusion or you're taken to a scene that is part of the story, but you really don't understand it until they rewind and give you the beginning of the story. You know what I'm talking about? They show you a scene, you're like, whoa, what's that all about? And then they take you to the beginning. And the rest of the events are to explain that one scene and then how the story concludes. Kind of like that, like pieces of the puzzle, right? We're going to see that these five scenes in the, in the book of Matthew chapters 1 and 2 are kind of like that. That you will see each of them, in fact I'll show you, this is what we're going to be looking at in the next several weeks, or three weeks I should say. Um, we're going to see an unexpected dream. At the last half of chapter 1, we're going to see an, un, an unexpected king, an unexpected trip, an unexpected sorrow, and then la- lastly, an unexpected hometown. Now, we've entitled it Unexpected, and yet we're going to see that these events were expected from the Scripture, but the way in which they played out in the story from a human perspective, they didn't expect the way this turned out. And yet as You will see every scene will quote a passage of Scripture or Scriptures to say, no, this was very expected, and this happened exactly the way God had intended it to happen. So here's the purpose of looking at these five scenes in the book of Matthew that I hope that we as a church will be able to grasp. It's real simple. That will either be renewed or maybe learn for the first time and appreciate the powerful sovereignty of God in the events of Jesus' birth. Also, that we'd learn to appreciate or be reminded of, or maybe learn for the first time, that Christ, that Jesus, the Christ, is sufficient. He's enough. He is everything that we need as creatures created in the image of God. So, Matthew chapter 1, if you're, if you're not already there, 
I invite you to open your Bibles, Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18, where we learn to appreciate the sovereignty of God and the sufficiency of Christ. Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Lord, open our eyes to this powerful story of the birth of your son, who is our Savior. Amen. One of the things I want you to notice is kind of rewind right before what I read is look at verse 1. Look at, look at what Matthew, his first words. Look what he says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, listen to this, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's account of, of Jesus' birth, life, and ministry, and then later death and resurrection, or what we call the gospel of Matthew, was written, written to a primarily Jewish audience. And kind of Matthew's goal in, in his book, in his gospel, is to show, to demonstrate, to kind of pull back the curtain and, and reveal that Jesus is the long-awaited son of David, son of Abraham. It should make us think of Old Testament promises like, uh, I will establish your throne forever. That was given to David. He wanted to build a house for the Lord. The Lord said, no, your son will do that, but I'm going to build a house for you. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise, that covenant promise that he made to David. He's also the fulfillment of the son of Abraham. Remember early on, Genesis chapter 12 and then later in 15, I will bless all the families of the world, of the earth, through you. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen one, the Christ, the one who was to come. And yet we begin reading in verse 18 when that took place. And kind of the first thing that we see, I would, I would call, is uh, the confusion over the virgin mother. And, you'll, and I'll talk about what I mean by that. Now, if you've ever read the book of Luke, Luke's gospel, uh, you know that there's more events that he records that Matthew really doesn't mention. In fact, I would say that those events, many of them that Luke records, happened before this announcement to Joseph. In other words, the announcement to John the Baptist's parents that we see in Luke had already happened. The announcement to Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
from the angel Gabriel had already happened. Mary had already visited her cousin Elizabeth, who was impregnated late in life with John the Baptist. And more than likely, she had come back from that trip, and that's when this took place. That's probably when she had to tell Joseph, because she, probably she was beginning to show, uh, I'm pregnant, and this is what happened. That's probably, as we look at the timeline of what has taken place right here, all those had happened, and now Joseph finds out that his betrothed, we'll talk about what that means here in a minute, is pregnant. Now, I love, you know, there, there have been... Uh, probably for at least the last 200 years, a lot of critics who say that the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin was impossible. That just doesn't happen, right? We know where babies come from. There is no way a woman can give birth without a man being involved, right? And yet, I love the simplicity of the statement in the Bible, which kind of, I think, gives it a ring of truthfulness, authenticity, the Bible doesn't go through great lengths to explain how this happened. It just says it happened. In fact, it says it in one verse. Did you see that? This is how Jesus was born. He, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was with child. Boom, there it is. God just makes the statement. Think about it. If humans made this story up, we would have added a lot more details, wouldn't we? But God doesn't have to do that. He just makes the simple statement. This is how the virgin birth took place. She was found with a child through the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that significant? Why did the virgin birth have to take place? Think of the condition of people, man, human beings, mankind. Who had offended God? We did. Humanity. We are the ones who offended God with our sin. But on the other hand, we think the one whom we offended is immeasurably, infinitely holy. So even though a person would attempt to make that right, you had to be infinitely holy to do that. And yet, the ones who offended him were human beings. So it had to be a human being who was infinitely holy. You see where I'm going? Jesus needed to be and is fully God and fully man. He gets his humanity from his mother, but there is no human father, for he is God. He was not touched by the sin of Adam, which we believe that's where the sin nature comes from, the father. He wasn't affected by that because he was born or uh, she was, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was both God and man. He could be infinitely holy, and yet he can be the worthy sacrifice by being a human being. That's why the virgin birth is central to what we believe. It's not just some story or, or nice thing that we like to remember. It is central to our salvation, to our faith, to what we believe. Now, notice what's going on here. We haven't talked about the confusion yet, have we? Look at, look at what Matthew records. This happened, she conceived when she was betrothed to Joseph. In that culture, when you were betrothed, when a, a husband and wife were betrothed, which was usually arranged by the parents, by the way, it was essentially a marriage contract. 
And the reason why there was a delay from the betrothal till the actual marriage ceremony is because when the parents came together to make that agreement, like I will give my son Joseph to your daughter Mary, and let's make that arrangement, and we'll set a date when they'll get married, usually uh, a, a year out. The reason for that time period is so that the husband-to-be would be able to earn and save up what we would call a dowry, basically uh, some sort of financial payment or gift. And it wasn't that he was paying for the bride as much as it was he was compensating the father who would pay for the marriage ceremony. Does that make sense? He would share some of that burden, right? Some also think that he was giving some uh, money as maybe as kind of as an insurance if Joseph would have died, who would have taken care of Mary? In that culture, she wouldn't have been able to go get a job. She would go back to her parents. And so the husband would pay for that as well. But it was, it was a marriage contract. And once you were betrothed, it was considered marriage. How can I say that? Look at this. Why is it that he says later on, and I read this, in verse, at the end of verse 19, that he resolved to divorce her. Why would he have to divorce her? They're just betrothed. No, that it was considered being married. Later on, he already calls her his wife. Betrothal was as good as marriage. By the way, kind of just a side note, something to think about. Marriages were, were arranged by parents, and the, those who were being married submitted to the choice of their parents, the direction and guidance of their parents, which is kind of an interesting thing that marriage was based on commitment, promise, and duty more than it was a feeling. I'm not like a downer on romance or anything, but it's just something to think about. That marriage is more than just what we feel, right? So, but the one who's confused in this virgin mother or, or, or who's kind of perplexed, it's not Mary. She's been told. It's definitely not God. It's Joseph. Think about it. If he's already married to this woman who, in this day and age, virginity was a massive thing to keep as a woman. In fact, usually when the marriage was consummated, usually there would be a party for several days, right? They would go, the the bride would be brought to the groom's house, and usually there was a kind of a parade and a processional, and there was all this celebration and this, and feasting and all this stuff going on, and then at some point you let the, the newlywed couple go on their own, and consummate the marriage, and they come back and join the feast again. And in part of that ceremony, I'm not going to get too detailed here, but there was a, uh, a proof, and I'll let you fill in the blank, that she was pure, that she was a virgin. And there was rejoicing when that was proved. It was a very precious thing. And yet, here is Joseph, whom the text tells us was a righteous man. He was a faithful man. He was a godly man. He's the one, a man of faith who, who believed in the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was saving up for this marriage to this young woman who essentially was doing what he was told to do. And then all of a sudden, Mary comes to him and says, Joseph, I've got to tell you something. Oh, yeah, what's, you know, you can just imagine, he's all excited, you know, they're going to get married in several months, and he, he's preparing for this day, he's excited for this day, he's getting the house ready. Um, I'm pregnant. Can you imagine just the, think about that. 
That's like you're engaged, you're ready to get married, and your spouse-to-be comes and drops that bomb on you and just says, oh, by the way, this is basically the way he understood it, I was unfaithful to you. Because there's no other explanation, humanly speaking, as to why his bride would be pregnant. No, you don't understand, Joseph. I, I didn't betray you. What do you mean? I, I had this vision. This angel came and spoke to me. And then he even spoke to Elizabeth. I, I'm telling you, I'm not lying. It was, it was by God, the Holy Spirit. And he told me that I'm going to give birth to the Messiah, the son of David. You can imagine the confusion going on in Joseph's head at this point. You expect me to believe. Mary, I know you're a good woman. I know you come from a good family. I know you follow the law of Moses. What are you telling? What are you talking about? Can you imagine just the inner turmoil going on in this man's heart and in his mind? God, I did everything right. I kept myself pure. I've saved up for, for this day for years. And, and here we are, and, th- and you do this to me. You can imagine. That's why the text says, as he considered these things, you know what he ended up deciding? As he goes, you know what? I need to divorce her. The law of Moses says that. In fact, the law of Moses goes a step further. Deuteronomy chapter 22, beginning in verse 23, says that if this happens, the woman is to be taken outside the city and stoned to death so that this impurity would be removed from the nation of Israel. And yet you see, Joseph, I, I think he, he is a man who, what does it say? He was a just man who followed the law. I think he understood kind of the the spirit of the law, and he wanted to show mercy. And he says, I don't want, I mean, this is going to be shameful enough. Look what he says. He resolved to divorce her quietly. He's considering these things. He's uneasy about these things, but he's definitely confused. God, what's going on? And then we see the angel comes and clarifies what's going on. Now, we don't know the name of this angel. More than likely, it was Gabriel, like the one who came and spoke to Mary. But Matthew doesn't tell us his name. But that would be probably our best guess. And here is, here is Joseph. He's confused. He's perplexed. He's thinking about these things. You can imagine he's, he's, he's up late at night. That's probably what's going on here. I mean, what in the world is going on? His, his, his whole plan for life is just crumbling around him. And he falls asleep. And the angel appears to him in a dream. And says, Joseph, son of David. Can you imagine the way, I mean, I know this is a dream, but I mean, that's like a, a title of honor. By the way, no one else in the Bible is called the son of David in the New Testament other than Jesus except for this passage. It always refers to Jesus, except right here it refers to Joseph, who was a descendant of David. You can imagine, he's, even though he's dreaming, yeah, son of David. Yeah, he turned, have you seen how I turned out? I, I picked this wife who betrays me. We're going to be the shame of the whole town. The angel says, son of Joseph, or Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And here's why. Because, that, because what she told you, basically, is true. 
She told you that the, the baby in her womb was conceived by God the Holy Spirit. And moreover, Joseph, you need to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I love the finality in that statement. Here he's dreaming, the angel's confirming what's going on. We're going to see that Joseph resolves to do the right thing, keeps marrying the whole. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I love what the angel says. Name him Jesus. You know what that word means? Remember what that name means? It's the same as kind of Joshua or Josiah or even Isaiah is very related to this name. It means, remember God's name in the Old Testament? Sometimes we say Jehovah's. It's the Hebrew is Yahweh, the God who is, right? The God who exists. It's Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus' names means. Name him Jesus. Why? Because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is coming to save. And I love the finality in this statement. He will save his people from their sins. I, I love how he just makes that statement. Now, now think about it. In the whole story of redemption, this hasn't taken place yet. Right? Jesus hasn't lived a perfect life. He hasn't done his ministry. He hasn't gone to the cross. and raised. None of that's happened yet. And yet the angel makes certain and says, look, you need to understand something. This will happen. God will do this. Jesus will, what? Save his people from their sins. Did you know that the Bible never teaches that Jesus died so that for the potential for people to be saved. It never talks about it that way. It talks about it in these terms. He died to save His people from their sins. He chose His people before the foundation of the world. I mean, there is this this finality to His death, burial, and resurrection. He did it to save. He didn't do it to bring the opportunity. He did it to bring salvation to His people. What what are some of the implications of that? Everyone Jesus intends to save will be saved. Everyone. His death will not be wasted. And he did this in fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. Right? He, he quotes that this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now this might be Matthew telling us that or the angel, but either way the, the, the issue is clear. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel. We talked about him being not only man, but God. Emmanuel. With us, literally with us, God. Or God with us. Emmanuel. So Joseph wakes from his dream, and we see the completion of the virgin birth, right? Real simple. So when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife. But he knew her not until she gave birth to the son, and he called his name Jesus. You, you know, this is an indication of, of Joseph, the man of faith, the man who followed the God of his fathers. He trusted God. I mean, think about that. You know, this is probably not going to go well. No one's going to believe this story. We're going to be the shame of Nazareth. Everyone's going to know. They can do math. When he's born, they're, wait a minute, he, he's already born and you were just married. You know what I mean? But God told me to do it. And I trust what God said. And I'm going to do what God said. He was obedient. And notice the, the, the note here. And he kept her 
He knew her not until she gave birth. He kept her a virgin, right? That needed to happen because the prophecy of the fulfillment that a virgin would give birth to a son. What is, what are the, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but after the birth of Jesus, Mary did not remain a perpetual virgin. She had children later. The implication is that he knew her not until after Jesus was born. The implication is that after that, they lived like a normal husband and wife, right? Matthew chapter 12, Mark 6, John chapter 2 record Jesus had brothers. Two of them wrote books of the Bible, the book of James and the book of Jude, right? She was not the perpetual virgin, as the Roman Catholic Church would teach, right? You might ask, well, why do they even go there? Well, it's because they have exalted Mary, unbiblically so, by the way, to be kind of, and this is not my term, this is their term. She's the co-redeemer. Think about that. So, you go through Mary to get to Jesus. She, like Jesus, co-redeemer. Therefore, you've got to show how Mary's been pure. And they even talk about how she was born of a virgin as well. And she remained a virgin after this. And then because of no sin and her perpetual virginity, she was ascended into heaven and this whole thing. That's why they try to say that she didn't have any children. But the Scripture's pretty clear. So, here's what I want to talk about the rest of our time. We've got about 15, 20 minutes. The significance of the name right? He is the one who saves. He is the one sent to save, right? And, and all of these things that happened that surrounded his birth. I want to talk about his name, Emmanuel. Very descriptive name. Jesus saves, and then he comes to be Emmanuel. Im, meaning with. You put on the last of Emmanu, with us. And then El is the Hebrew word God. What does that mean? What is the significance of that? Think about it. Where are we at in the story? Humanity's a few thousand years old about this point. Humanity has horrifically sinned against God. Just read some of the Old Testament. Just read some of world history. The atrocities that's already been committed up until this point in history. We have offended God to the point where the Bible will call us, before we knew Jesus, we were His what? His enemies. We were at enmity. There was hostility. There was no relationship there. You know what Emmanuel means? It means, if it means God with us, it means that God desires to be with us. Let that sink in. God desires and has designed to be with us. Let's just be honest, okay? You know in your heart of hearts, the one you love the most is that person in the mirror that you see every morning, right? And, we, and that, that'll manifest, it'll come out in different ways. The way you treat people, what you, what you like, what you dislike. I mean, naturally, that's the way we think, that's the way we feel, that's our natural bent, right? That's why Jesus said, hey, love other people the way you really like yourself, right? We really like me. I don't mean me, you know what I mean. Not me, but you. We do. And given left to ourselves, we would not obey God. We would not submit to His law. We wouldn't care what He thinks. We wouldn't give a second thought to what He requires or what He did or what we've done against Him. We were born in that state. And then maybe start to think about some of the sins that you've committed against Him. You don't need to blurt these out. But think to, your, think to yourself. The lies you've made, 
the betrayals you've committed? I mean, whether it be pride or whether it be just loose living or whatever, you fill in the blank. That's you and I. And yet the love of God is displayed when He sends His Son, who is Emmanuel, and He indicates to us, He will be God with you because I desire to be with you. If that isn't the love of God, I don't know what is. It's not as though, oh yeah, Jesus is coming, and He's going to pay for the sins of His people. And one of the kind of side benefits is uh, he'll, He'll be with you forever. But you know, it's not really a big deal. At least you're forgiven. No, the whole reason you're forgiven is so that He can be with us. The love of God. It also means if God was going to do that, be with us, that He would have to do something about our sin. Doesn't it? What is you know, that vision of Isaiah in, in, in chapter 6 or even Joshua when he's confronted by the the, the captain of the Lord's armies, there is this terrifying like thing going on when you're confronted by the living God. All of a sudden, Isaiah like, whoa, right? God is holy. I'm becoming unraveled. He's so holy. And yet he says he came to be with us, which indicates that he would have to do something about our sin. You see, God is immeasurably holy, and unfathomably loving. And all of that meets in the person of Jesus. It's not as though, like, you know, I just love you so much. You know, yeah, that sin stuff, it's, nah, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. No, it is such a big deal that I'm going to have to come off my throne, become a man, die the death that you deserve, rise from the dead, so that your sin can be dealt with, so that I can be with you. That's what Emmanuel means. And some of those practical, think about this. Have you noticed that after you've come to faith and come to know Jesus, that sin is still an issue? Is that just me? Or is that all of us? We're still tempted, right? We have two desires now, to obey God, but there's still the flesh, and that's why we need to walk in the Spirit and deny the lust of the flesh. But the flesh is an issue. You know what Emmanuel means? It means that every time you are tempted, Jesus says, I am with you. So think about what, you, what tempts you. What are your weaknesses? What are, where, where, are you, where are your weak points in, in reference to your character? What are you tempted by? Pride, lust, you know, lying, whatever. Possessions. Where are you tempted? Emmanuel means that Jesus says, hey, Yeah, you're going to live this life and struggle against that, but I'm with you every step of the way. I will be with you. There is no excuse to say, well, I just couldn't help myself. And Jesus goes, oh, yes, you could, because I'm right there with you. Which also means that he is there to convict us of our sin and to convict us of our temptations that are sinful. You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, this probably happened this morning. I know it did for me, where you're tempted to be a sinful thought or take a sinful action. You're thinking to yourself, and Jesus is faithful to remind you, uh, you know that's wicked, right? Yeah. You know that this is the path that I've laid before you. Come to me, I'll help you overcome that temptation. In other words, Him being with us, 
He's there to convict us of our sins, show us the path of righteousness. He helps us overcome to do what's right rather than what we feel. Remember last week we were talking about those who live sensually according to what they feel and their passions? Jesus is with us so that we can overcome that. He is our Emmanuel. He is there on the flip side. He is there when we experience great blessing and joy. You know, I don't know if you know this, but one of the, the secrets to enjoying God's blessings, whether it be, and let's just face it, material wealth is a blessing. The, the, the freedoms that we have are blessings. The children that God gives us are blessings. The fact that we eat every day is a blessing, right? The way to rightly and appropriately experience and appreciate those blessings is to receive them in light of God's goodness and to think and to remember and to thank God, thank you that I get to enjoy. And then you fill in the blank. I I strive to do this because this is probably one of those things where I'm very tempted to love what God gives rather than love Him. I strive to do this every time I eat. Right? Those of you, you like to eat? Love to eat. And when I enjoy a good meal, I, I just sit to my, think to myself, God, thank you for the blessing of what I'm enjoying. Or when I'm spending time with my, my wife or, or my kids and we're goofing around or having a good time or whatever, I think to myself, God, thank you for what you've given. God with us means relationship. It means living in light of His gifts. It means that He gives us the strength not to be more concerned about His gifts as we are the giver. Emmanuel, He's with us during great joy and great blessing. Here's another, I just love this one. So this is, this is one of the reasons why we want our children to come to an understanding of who Jesus is, right? That they're sinners, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and that they need to trust Him for the forgiveness of their sins. This is because when they're not with you, whether they're either just outside the home or at some time they move out and maybe they get married or go to school or have a job, whatever it is. If they know Jesus, one of the great comforts for a parent is to know that Jesus is with them. I've seen parents. I've talked to parents. In some way, my parents are kind of like this, where your, your children move away and God calls them to do something. And sometimes it's, it's on the other side of the planet. And yet there is this comfort. Now I'm going to miss them. I, I'm not going to get to see them as much. But Jesus is with them because He's our Emmanuel. God with us. Emmanuel means that Jesus is with us when we endure great pain and suffering. I was just talking to a couple this morning. A lot of times when we experience difficult times, and and it could be, you know, we're going to get into this into James. It could be stuff that's not like life-threatening, but it's still difficult and everything in between. When we experience those times, whether we're not getting along with a spouse or our health is failing or the health of a loved one is failing or someone we know is on the brink of death or, or someone lost a job and, and you, can just, you, you know what life is like. And we, it's in those times we think to ourselves, where is God? I thought He loved me. 
I mean, you know how the world answers that? I mean, we saw a very clear picture of that this week when some mocked those who were praying for those who died in Southern California, right? Why pray? He doesn't do anything about it anyway. They're still dead. Did you see that? And we're tempted to think that too. And yet Emmanuel means if God is with us is that he is with us every step of the way no matter how difficult, no matter how wide or deep the struggle goes. He is there with us. And at times we say, Lord, please take this away. And he says, no, I have design in this difficulty. God, I can't handle it. And the Lord says, I know. That's why I'm there with you. This is painful. Yes, it is. But you wait and see what I'm going to do. Emmanuel is the confident assurance that no matter how much we suffer, no matter how painful life gets, God says, I am with you every step of the way. And I will take you home. No matter how deep the struggle is, you will never be removed from my sovereign hand because I'm with you, because I love you. Have you ever been there where you're kind of at the bottom of the barrel? I kind of shared with you last week I was kind of there when I went to North Africa and just the overwhelming, it was just depressing, to be honest with you. Um, and it's just you and God. And it hurts, and it's, it's, sometimes it's frightening. But, you know, he's always there. I, Lord, oh, Lord, help me. You, you ever had the, sometimes you don't even know what to ask. You're, Lord, help me. He hears those prayers. He answers those prayers. And he doesn't always take away the pain. But he gives us the strength to endure, to lift our eyes up from where our help comes from. It is from the Lord. Emmanuel. It's not just a song we sing during the Christmas season. It goes deep. It's penetrating. So ask yourself, as you get caught up buying presents, going to parties, and those things are fun. I love those. You know, getting together, singing Christmas songs, decorating your house, and all that stuff. It's great. Nothing wrong with that. Don't forget that Jesus left heaven, became a human being, so that he could be Emmanuel, God with us. Amen? Did we get any questions? Go ahead and put them up. Why was Joseph considered just when he was contemplating breaking the law by not having Mary stoned? I think it goes back to what I made this reference that I, I think he understood kind of the, the spirit of the law. In other words, what was the intention of the law given through Moses? We know that the law of Moses was not permanent, but it was meant to teach, Right? And I think he understood, okay, you know what, life is more important. Love, kindness, grace. And he decided to be gracious. And I think the Lord approved of that. It's not the only time we've seen that kind of act in Scripture. 
Remember the story of David when he's running from Saul? He goes to the tabernacle and he goes to the priests and he says, hey, do you have anything to eat? And the priests say, all we have is the showbread. Showbread was the bread that was prepared, that was taken to the holy place, put on the table, and it was to represent the the bread of uh, life that would come. It was kind of pointing towards Jesus, but it was actual bread. And the only ones who were allowed to eat that were the priests, the sons of Aaron. After it would get old, the sons of Aaron could take it and they could go and feed their family with it. And then if they didn't need it, they had to discard it or like burn it. The priest gave him the bread. David ate. Jesus praised him for that. Why is that? Because I think David understood the spirit of the law. God uh, is concerned about life. So that's why I would say, you know, he, he was still just. He didn't follow the letter of the law, but I believe he followed the spirit of the law. So that's how I would answer that. It seems harsh to stone someone over adultery in our world today, so how do we reconcile the Old Testament God with the God of grace today? Um, remember what the law of Moses was intended for, okay? It was intended to teach. If you look at the, the Bible, it's an unfolding book of, God's, of God making himself known. And one of the things he wanted his people to know up front, hey, I'm holy, And that was one way to teach that God is, hey, you offend me, there are consequences. That doesn't mean he wasn't gracious when he gave that law. But it was meant to teach that he was holy. The God of the Old Testament is still the same God of the New Testament. If that's not true, if God wasn't that serious about his holiness as he was in the Old Testament as he is in the New, Jesus wouldn't have died on the cross. He could have just swept. No, he's just a God of grace. Just forget about it. Right? The command to stone someone for adultery was to show that God was holy and that he takes sin seriously. But as his plan of redemption unfolded, he lifted that command by the law of Moses not being uh, what we live under today, but that doesn't mean that adultery is still not that serious. Okay? As God's people, think of it this way, as they matured, God revealed more of himself. Right? That was meant to teach that sin, the sin of adultery is serious. Which is, again, that command still teaches us today. Because think about our culture, even in the church, how rampant that type of sin is. It's like, ah, what's the big deal? You just find somebody else and, yeah, it's no big deal. Oh, really? It's so serious that at one point, God says, you need to die from that because that's sinful. Right? That still teaches us how honorable marriage is and how holy God is. So as the band comes forward, I, w- I want you to think about something. As we, We're going to move into a time of communion and we're going we're gonna to sing Emmanuel, God with us. Remember I told you that the, the book of Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience and his whole reason or for writing the, <coughs> the gospel of Jesus in the book of Matthew is to show that Jesus is the king of the Jews. He fulfilled all the scriptures that God had written about the Christ who was to come. And I find it fascinating that, that Matthew has two bookends to his whole gospel. Notice how here in the beginning of the story, after he gives the genealogy of Jesus, the first thing he talks about is Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Have you ever thought about that the book ends that way? Right? We, we know the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth, there's no other authority, all of it has been given to me. And he gives the command. As you go, make disciples of all the nations. 
baptizing them, having them uh, identify with me publicly in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them always all that I've commanded, to, commanded you. And behold, listen to this. This is what Emmanuel said. Behold, understand, know, perceive, grasp. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When Jesus came to be our Emmanuel, he never ceased being our Emmanuel. Think about this. As you get ready, as we get ready to remember him, think about this thought. He is with us right now. He is with us right now. So as you prepare your heart and your mind to remember him, talk to him. If you need to confess, do that. If you don't know him, maybe talk to him for the first time. Ask him to forgive you for your sin, to renew your heart. Maybe you know him, and maybe there's not necessarily sin that's glaring you right in the eye, but maybe there's just some, you know, Lord, I didn't thank you. I haven't thanked you enough for maybe something that he's done in your life, or maybe just thanking him for what he did. Jesus, thank you for leaving your father, living like one of us, so that you and I can have a relationship, so that you could be our Emmanuel. Father, I pray that you would...